Whenever a uh, group of people are getting in a car and going somewhere, you've probably heard somebody shout out the word shotgun. And as you know, that means that they're claiming the coveted front seat. Now, if you're not familiar with the practice of calling shotgun, you can actually go on the internet and look. There are multiple websites that have the official rules for calling shotgun. <laughs> There's even an app for your phone these days that allows you to call shotgun when you're with a group. Now, one of the rules that you'll find is that there's an overriding rule to all others, and that's that the driver of the car has the ability to shoot you down. You may have called shotgun, you might have even occupied the front seat, but they have the veto opportunity to say to you, you have to vacate the seat because there's somebody more important, more deserving of that front seat. And if that ever happens to you, it's quite a humbling experience as you get demoted in front of everybody. And as you have to vacate the front seat, usually all the other seats are now taken, so you end up in the very worst seat as you get pushed to the very back of the car. Now, as we turn in our Bible today to Luke chapter 14, what we're going to see is that Jesus gives us a simple rule for calling shotgun. Are you ready for it? He says, don't do it. He says, don't seek the places of honor. Instead, take the back seat. Now, as people, that goes against our natural tendency, doesn't it? I mean, we want the best seats, whether it's talking about the table with the view, the skybox at a sporting event, having the seat behind home plate, the 50-yard line tickets. Who doesn't want the front row in a concert? Now, y'all in church are great because you always give the places of honor <laughs> the front seats to everybody else, and you, you go all the way to the back. You're such servants. I love that about the people of God. Now... Those places that have the best view also come with the greatest potential for bragging, don't they? I mean, don't we love to tell somebody, I had these seats, I was courtside, I, I've never been able to do it, but you're able to say to somebody, I had these seats. And you see, that's really the point of the parable today. Jesus really doesn't care where we sit. What he's more concerned about is the condition of our heart, that condition called pride, where we brag or other things. And so that's the purpose of the parable that we're looking at today here in Luke chapter 14. As we look at Luke 14, what we see is the heart condition of those that Jesus was speaking to is diseased. And it shows up in the way that they deal with a man who had a disease. Look with me at Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. It says, And it came about when he, this is Jesus, went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, that they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a certain man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him, and he healed him, and he sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you shall have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. Now, as we read that Jesus had been invited to the house to eat bread, uh, we see right up front the hypocrisy of the group that is here. Because when you invited somebody to eat with you in this day, it was a sign of intimate fellowship. It was, it was something you did with family or friends, those that you uh, counted in a close circle. But Jesus knows that neither he nor this man are there for fellowship. They are there to be the main course. 
We're told this meal is taking place in the home of a Pharisee. Now, the Greek word that is used here is in argon. And this is not just your run-of-the-mill religious leader. He's literally one of the rulers, one of the leaders of the Pharisees. This is a guy who sits on the Supreme Court, so to speak, the Sanhedrin. He is one of the, the high Pharisee officials. And we see there are other leaders and lawyers that are there among this man who clearly doesn't belong because we're told this guy has dropsy. Now, dropsy is a medical condition that causes a body to retain water. So the person would swell and they were uncomfortable and it was a very visible disease to everybody who looked at it. And you'll recall that the theology of the Pharisees said that people in that day, if you were poor or you were sick or suffering, it was because you were this wretched sinner and God was somehow judging you for it. So here is a man that is seen as this, this outcast, this sinner that has been invited into the home of all the religious leaders. This is not a guy they would normally have there. But he's there for one reason, which is to be the bait in the trap. Because they want to make uh, Jesus in a position where he's going to have to deal with this man on the Sabbath. Now, as you read through the scriptures, you see there were several run-ins with Jesus and the religious leaders on the Sabbath. There are actually six times that we find confrontations on the Sabbath. Five of those are when Jesus healed somebody on the Sabbath, and the other one was a time where the disciples were walking through a field, and they were hungry, and we're told they were plucking heads of grain, and they were rubbing them between their hands to, it's kind of like breaking open sunflower seeds to, to get them. And the Pharisees said, well, this is against the law. You are threshing on the Sabbath. You're harvesting. Now, the Pharisees were those who loved to set up little sets of rules, added fences upon fences to what God's law actually said. And they were big on adding all these restrictions to the law. One of them was how much you could carry on a Sabbath day. You, they said you couldn't pick up something weighing more than two dried figs, which amounted to just a few ounces. It's why one of the times when Jesus healed the paralytic on the Sabbath, you'll recall Jesus told him, pick up your mat. And as this guy rolled up his sleeping pallet, this man who had been paralyzed and, and, and locked into it, they got mad. And they said, who told you to break the Sabbath law? Well, Jesus did, you know. And so they were always worried more about their rules than about God's law. Jesus had great respect for the Sabbath. The Sabbath in the scriptures is to be a day of rest. It's to be a day of worship. But you recall as Jesus talked about what the purpose of the Sabbath is, he said in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. But the Pharisees had put all these rules into place. So that's why they got mad in John chapter 5 when this man is carrying his mat. You know, we would look at that and say, wow, what a great miracle. But they got mad. Now I say we would do that, but would we really? You know, sometimes as Christians, we, we take God's truth and we add our own traditions to it, don't we? And we begin to be like the Pharisees where we put our own little fences in place about the rules that go with what it really means to be a Christian. And we have these rules and rituals and we look religious and we lose sight of what God's purpose really is. As God's people, we need to make sure that we uphold the truth of the Scriptures but we don't equate our traditions at the same level as God's word. Now, here we're about to see there's a clash again because Jesus says to them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, Luke 14, 4 tells us, but they kept silent. And Jesus took hold of him and he healed him and he led him away. 
You know, here's another situation. A great miracle has just occurred in your presence. I mean, imagine the swelling of this man suddenly gone. His features are no longer bloated. He, he returns to normal. The, the man has been freed. And we would go, wow. But these guys go, now we got to kill him. Now we're going to kill Jesus. Because look what he did. He broke our rules again. I mean, there's a great miracle, and they're mad again because he's trampled on their petty rules. Now, Jesus already knew they wanted to kill him. If you look earlier in Luke 13, 31, there there was a group of Pharisees who came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, you'd better get out of here. You'd better run away because Herod is going to kill you. Now, Jesus wanted to say, yeah, and you guys want him to, and you want to kill me yourselves. And what Jesus said to them is, I'm not going to run away. Jesus knew that his death was approaching. And it wasn't because Herod or even the Pharisees, these guys were out to get him. It's because Jesus was going to freely lay down his life. Jesus, as the Messiah who had come, knew that his purpose was to go to the cross, to give his life, to die, to be the sacrifice, the payment for the sins of the world. So he, he's telling these guys, I know that day is coming and I'm not going to run away from it. And as Jesus is there in the house, as you look a little bit ahead in the book of Luke, if you keep reading through the gospel of Luke, you'll see that just in a few chapters, Jesus will be standing trial where he will be sentenced to die. And the, the group that Jesus will stand before, one of the groups will be the Sanhedrin. The guys who are seated around the table right now, you have the, these argons, these rulers, you have the lawyers. I mean, this is the legal committee that Jesus knows in about 10 days, I will be standing before you guys again, where you will be sentencing me to death. Now, if you knew that, and you were in that position, would you say, time to break out the book, how to win friends and influence enemies? How do I pander to this group? How do I try to get on their good side? But what Jesus said is, I don't care about the world's books. I care about God's book called the Bible and what God wants me to be doing. And so he says, this is going to make you guys mad, but I'm going to extend mercy. I'm going to heal this man. And as he does so, uh, he sends the man away. Now, after healing the man and sending him away, the Pharisees didn't protest, did they? They didn't say, well, what are you doing? We invited the guy to dinner. They were glad to see this guy go. He wasn't part of their group. He had served the purpose. He had sprung the trap. And so they were glad that he was leaving. But in verse 5, we see it wasn't Jesus who had been caught in the trap, but it was the Pharisees. Because Jesus says to them, Which one of you shall have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? Now, remember, this guy had a disease called dropsy, which caused you to be trapped by water. So Jesus, as the master teacher, says, let me set up a situation where we have a water well. And one of your kids is trapped in the well. Or even an animal, a livestock like an oxen, falls into the well. And he says, wouldn't you go in and rescue that person or that animal from the water well? And he says, so why is it so bad that I just rescued a man who was trapped by water? That I just freed him? And you see in verse 6, their response. They could make no reply to this. Now, while Jesus is dealing with their hearts, he says, let's go a little bit deeper to another disease that I see you suffering with. It's called pride. He says, because while you guys have been watching me, I've been watching you. 
He says, and he began speaking a parable to the invited guest when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. Jesus says, when you are invited by somebody to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, lest somebody more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both shall come and say to you, give this place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that the, when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, and then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, what Jesus does is he paints the picture here of a wedding feast. And he says, there is a full sit-down dinner. Now, actually, it's a lay-down dinner. Uh, you'll recall this picture I showed you in a past sermon uh, of a meal I was at over in Kazakhstan. And this is actually how they ate. When you read in the Bible that they were reclining at the table, or Jesus was reclining in, in the chest of the disciple whom he loved, the head was on his chest, it's because you were like sardines. This person in the middle playing the guitar, he's, he's the, the host of the dinner, he's the mayor of the city. And as he, you see that his place would be to put his feet behind me and his head would go in the chest in front. So when you were at a dinner, the place of honor was to the right of the, the person who was holding the meal. And then your prominence went down as you went around the table or farther from the host. It's kind of like when we go to a wedding uh, banquet today and there's the head table and you know that the, the wedding party is there at the head table, and then the tables closest to that one are the places of honor. And what do we do? We put little placards, right? We put name plates that say, this place is reserved for this person, because you don't want uh, somebody who's just going to run up and take one of the good seats. And so you reserve those seats. Well, at this meal, Jesus, as he sets the story, says, There's, there are no name plates, the people came in, and they were to sit according to their honor and position. Now, remember, the group that Jesus is speaking to are the religious leaders, the lawyers, and the scribes, and the Pharisees. These are the guys that were used to being the guest of honor at everybody else's meal. When you invited uh, the person over to your meal, to your house, this was the person you put in the seat of honor. So what do you do when you have all these chiefs and no Indians, Right? They all come in the room together and they're all thinking, I'm the guy, I'm the person of importance. And so they start grabbing the seats of honor. <clears throat> now, as we know today, people like to come fashionably late. If a person is of status or thinks they're big stuff, uh, they are the ones who usually come in a little later, right, to make that grand entrance. And so here you've got the meal and you have these different people who have been seated in these places of honor and in walks somebody of a higher position. And what happens? The, the guy walks up and he says, well, somebody called shotgun and they're in the front seat. Now the host says, I can't allow this dishonor to go on because all that are left are the cheap seats, so to speak, near the back. And so you're gonna have to give up your seat. And if you're laying there, this isn't like when you're at a table and somebody joins you and you start saying, you know, I think we can scoot another chair in. You kind of, everybody kind of shift around and you jam another chair in. Well, you can't do that like this, can you? I mean, you're stacked like sardines, head to, you know, chest to head and, and feet are everywhere. And if you try to scooch somebody in there, it's not going to work. So you actually have to get up. Stand up in full view of everybody. There's no kind of sneaking around. You know, you stand up 
And now you're looking and saying, well, I don't want to go down there. Hey, you, you're in my place. You move. And wouldn't it be fun to watch the game of dominoes that takes place? As this one gets up and that one has to move. Now, what do you do when you come over to a guy and you say, hey, you're in my seat. You need to move. And he goes, I'm not moving. I'm as important as you are. This, this place, you don't get it. So you go to the next, I, I, I need this. No, no, no. And pretty soon, what's left? Oh, yeah, there's that one seat all the way over there. And so you who exalted yourself in the presence of everybody are humbled in the presence of everybody as you get to take this walk of shame all the way to the last place. Many of you will remember Muhammad Ali. He was a, uh, a, a well-known boxer. Whoops. We'll just leave it there. <laughs> Muhammad Ali was this well-known boxer. And as you know, he loved to shout, I'm the greatest. And it wasn't just left to the boxing ring. It was his persona. Everywhere that Ali went, he thought he was all that in a bag of chips. And so he, he boarded a plane one day. And as he's sitting there on the plane, the flight attendant comes up and says, uh, excuse me, sir, you're going to need to buckle your seatbelt. We can't take off till you buckle your seatbelt. And Muhammad Ali looked at this young woman and he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she said, sir, you, you have to buckle your seatbelt. We can't leave until you do this. And he repeated it. Superman don't need no airplane. To which the woman replied, I mean, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which the woman replied, Superman don't need no airplane. Now buckle your seatbelt. <laughs> and Ali, being humbled, did so. As we look at this parable on pride and as we talk about what it means for us, it's hard because we often have a skewed view of what humility is, don't we? As, as we hear that we are called here to humble ourselves, I think some of us are afraid that if we humble ourselves, then we're going to become a doormat, that everybody's going to walk over us. We equate humility with weakness. But I want you to listen to a passage in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. There it's describing Moses, and it says, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Some translations say, Moses was meek. And again, we hear this word meek, and we think it's this timid, weak person. But the word that is used there is a word that described a horse that had a bit, a bridle put in its mouth, where you could control this massive animal. The word literally means strength under control. When we're humble, when we're meek, it doesn't mean that we forfeit our strength. It doesn't mean that we diminish who we are. What it means is we take that strength and it's under control. I mean, remember Moses. This was a man who had to have his heart and his life changed. He was in Pharaoh's court. He was in line for succession. But there was that time where he, in a burst of anger, he killed an Egyptian and he had to flee into the wilderness. And God, as he took him into the, the wilderness in a very humbling experience of being a shepherd for almost 40 years in a place that nobody knew about, God was changing Moses. And he made him a man who would return to Egypt. And he would lead millions. And he would be used by God to do miracles. And here was a man that nobody would say was a weakling that is described as being humble or meek. Another problem with humility is some of us worry, well, if we don't promote ourselves, then who will? Well, 1 Peter 5, 6 tells us this. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. You see, what the world says is if you want to make it in this world, what you need to do is if you want to be somebody, you self-promote, you push, you fight, you claw your way to the top, you walk over other people. The way that you get to the, the way up is up. But in the Bible, we're told the opposite is true. In James 4.10, it tells us, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So what does it mean to humble ourselves? Well, as I said, humility is not about devaluing ourselves, and it's not about this fake pride that we put aside and, and act like we're, we're dirt. What humility is is not thinking less of ourselves. What true humility is is thinking of ourselves less. Humility is thinking of ourselves less. There was a great conductor, Leonard Bernstein, and he was once asked, what is the most difficult instrument to play in an orchestra, in a symphony? And he thought for a moment and he said, the second fiddle. He said, I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find somebody to play the second fiddle with enthusiasm, that's a problem. And if I have no second fiddle, then we have no harmony. Corrie Tin Boom is a woman who's known to most of us. Her story became famous after the Holocaust of what she and her family did to, to save uh, many people during the, the terrible days of the Nazi Holocaust. And after she achieved literally worldwide fame, one day somebody asked her, Corrie, is it, is it hard to be humble? And she gave a simple reply. She said, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and everyone was waving palm branches and throwing garments on the road and singing praises. Do you think that for one moment it ever entered the mind of the donkey that that was for him? <laughs> she continued, if I can be the donkey on which Jesus Christ rides in his glory, then I give him all the praise and honor. You see, friends, humility is not a removal of your importance. What humility is, is changing your attitude about your importance. It's understanding that we're simply the donkey that God gets to ride on in, in his glory. We are simply the messenger boys and girls who share the good news of the gospel and the message. When it comes to how important you are, I want you to remember how important God thought you were. I want you to look at the cross and I want you to remember what God thought of you. That he thought you were of such value that he would give his only begotten son to die for you. If I or you were the only person who ever lived, God still would have left his throne in heaven to come to earth to take my place or yours going to that cross to pay the penalty of death for your sins. That's how important you are. When it comes to being humble, it is not denigrating ourselves, thinking of ourselves as dirt. You know, so many of us worry about what other people think of us and our importance. And what we forget is to remember how important we were to God. How much he was willing to pay to save us. To send his only son to die for us. And as those whom God died for, we need to die to ourselves. We need to become less self-centered, and we need to become more Christ-centered as his 
<clears throat> excuse me, as his disciples. What pride is, is the attitude that says, I am the center of the universe. I'm the center of the universe. And what we find is pride is about self-promotion, which, friends, often leads to a demotion. Proverbs 16, 18 tells us, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. I think a way to illustrate it is to tell the story of a turtle. This turtle was in a pond that was, because of a drought, was drying up. And as the water became less and less, and as the, the ducks and the, the turtle and the fish and everything were having to share a smaller part of the water, finally one day the ducks, who were friends with this turtle, said, you know, we're going to have to move on. We're going to fly away from here and go find another pond. And we really wish we could bring you with us, but you can't fly. And the turtle said, I've got a solution. He said, let's get a stick, and, and two of you ducks, put it in your bill. Each of you clamp down on one end, and I will come, and I'll clamp down on the center of the stick. And as you take off, you can fly me to the next place. And they said, you know, it, it might just work. Let's try it. And so they got in position. Everybody clamped down on the stick. The ducks took off, and sure enough, they were able to do it. And as this, uh, these two ducks and turtle hanging onto the middle of this stick were flying across the field, there were two farmers sitting there, and they looked up, and they said, wow, would you look at that? They said, that's genius. I bet one of them ducks thought of that. What do you think? Now, the turtle, as they were flying over and he's hearing this conversation, he couldn't stand the thought that the ducks <laughs> were, were getting the credit for his brilliant idea. So when they said, who do you think thought of that? The turtle opens his mouth and says, I did. <laughs> and pride comes before the fall. <laughs> you know, the greatest warning about the danger of pride is seen in what happened with Satan. Satan the devil, Lucifer. He has many names in the Bible, and as you look at who he was, he was created as an angel of light, the covering cherub. He was given a position at the very place of God in his glory, at the throne of God. And as he was there in the full glory of God, as this covering cherub angel, he said, this isn't good enough. I want God's place. He said, I will take over the throne of God. And because of pride, this is what God said in Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to earth. You, have been, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And God says, nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. In the scriptures, we see in contrast to Satan who said, I will ascend, I will grab something that is not mine. We see God's son, Jesus, who said, I will take what is mine and I will empty myself of it. In Philippians chapter 2, we're told in verses 3 through 11, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. 
Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, it tells us that Jesus who had the place of which there was none higher said, I will go as low as I need to go. Remember the way up is down. And we're told that he humbled himself and he left heaven to come to earth. And the creator became one of the creations, taking on the limitations of flesh and blood. He humbled himself, becoming a man. And as Jesus walked the earth, he continued to humble himself. At the Last Supper, the night he was telling his disciples, I am about to be arrested, betrayed by one of you, beaten, crucified, and I will die. What did he do? The disciples were all too proud. Remember the dinner, how you sat like sardines? And they walked in and there was no servant. And so they're walking in with dirty, dusty, stinky feet, all sitting there around the table. And Jesus says, if none of you will take the place of the servant, I will. And he got up from the head position. And he stripped his clothing, girded himself with a towel. And he got down and he washed the disciples' feet, taking the place of the lowest servant. And then Jesus humbled himself further. By taking our place as he went to the cross, taking and dying the death of the lowest criminal of the day, suffering a brutal death. And then he went lower as he was taken off the cross and buried in a tomb. And when Jesus could go no lower as he descended to the lowest parts of the earth to proclaim the victory over sin and death, it says he was then exalted to a place that there is none higher, as he has been given the name above all names, a name at which every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and even those under the earth that rejected him during this lifetime. Friends, the way up is the way down. And it still works that way today. If you're somebody who is here and, and, and you're thinking, you know, Roger, that stuff is great for church. But you know what? Tomorrow, I get to go back to work. And, and, and you preachers don't really understand the real world. I, I, you know, I know that. You, you guys are good about talking about nice stuff. But, you know, I, I live in a dog-eat-dog -dog world. And, and you've got to crush the competition. Is that what you think? Well, I'd invite you to read the literature. Not from preachers, but from people in the business world. There are studies done by multiple universities, institutes like Yale and Harvard and, and all these places that have studied the business world. There are best-selling business books that have been written by men like Jim Collins, uh, Good to Great, Level 5 Leadership, Built to Last. Read the books that have studied the best, greatest, most successful companies that are out there. Read Patrick Lencioni's books on servant leadership and the parable ways that he tells the story of business. And as you go through all the literature, as you study all the, the evidence that is out there, they find the most successful companies, the CEOs, the leaders, the managers, the others who are the most successful, do you know what they do? They look like Jesus. They have a towel and a basin mentality where they serve the people they work for. 
and they serve the customers. And they realize the way up is down. Many of you will recognize uh, this man. It's Dave Thomas. Dave Thomas is very well known for Wendy's. What many people don't know a part of his story is he's the driving force behind the success of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Before he started Wendy's, he was the guy that helped make KFC successful. And he wrote, his, his autobiography is titled, Well Done, The Common Guy's Guide to Everyday Success. Now in the book, Dave Thomas says, I got my MBA long before my GED. Part of Dave's story is that he had to quit work at a very, quit school at a very early age. He was a high school dropout. And at the age of 61, he went back and finished his high school diploma. He got his GED at the age of 61. He didn't want people out there, young people, to say, well, I can be a success as a high school dropout. So he set the example that you need to complete your education. Now, he says he got his MBA long before his GED. Now, he says, I have a photograph of me in my MBA graduation outfit. It was a snazzy, knee-length work apron. I guarantee you, he says, that I'm the only founder among America's big companies whose picture in the corporate annual report shows him wielding a mop and a plastic bucket. Now, for Dave Thomas, those things weren't just a, a nice prop for a photo opportunity. It's the way that he lived. It's the way that he ran his company. He led by example. The MBA that he was speaking of doesn't mean a Master's of Business Administration. It stands for a mop bucket attitude. A mop bucket attitude. Friends, when it comes to your life, how do you live? How do you lead? You know, if you're somebody that thinks you're too big to be willing to do the little things, then I have to tell you, you're probably too little to be trusted with the big things. If you're too big to do the little things, you're probably too little to be trusted with the big things. The Bible is very clear. God says, when we are faithful in a little, we will be given more. In our passage today, Jesus calls us to have a mop bucket attitude where we serve others. And it's not because how important they are or what they can do for us. He says it should be the way that we live our life. We need to live our life with this idea of joy. This idea of joy stands for Jesus, others, and you. If you were to keep reading through the passage, what you would find in verses 12 through 14, Jesus tells those at the meal that they are not to do things with an attitude of giving in order to get. See, Jesus, as he corrects their seating arrangement, goes on to say, look, I know how you guys work. You throw these parties, you invite other people who come, who now are obligated to invite you to their parties, and it becomes this big game. And what he says is, don't do that. Find the people who can do nothing for you and serve them. There's a story told about General Robert E. Lee. He was riding on a train to Richmond one day, and General Lee was seated in the back of the train, and it was packed. It was a, a troop train, and it was filled with soldiers and officers, and General Lee was in the back with, with his uh, corps contingent. And as this train stopped at one of the places, this poorly dressed elderly uh, widow gets on the train. 
And as she starts to walk down the aisle of this carriage car, all the seats are taken. And as she comes to each seat and she looks at the men, they all look away. And she works her way all the way down to the back of the train where General Lee is sitting. And as soon as she approaches, he immediately stands up and says, ma'am, would you please take my seat? Now, as soon as General Lee stands up, he said multiple men and officers stood up and said, General Lee, you may have my seat. And General Lee said to them, no men. If there was no seat for this woman, there can be no seat for me. What Jesus tells us in the Bible, in Matthew 25, 40, he says, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Rather than being those who promote ourselves or give to get, what we're told to do is to have an attitude of joy. Jesus, others, and then you. And if you live your life this way, you will start to find that you have joy in your life. You won't constantly be fighting and backbiting and clawing your way to the top and worrying about who's going to come along and knock you out of your seat because you're willing to say, have the best seats. I'll take the one in the back. And once you've gone all the way down, there's only one place you can go, which is up. If we live this way, we will have joy. So as we prepare to leave today, I want us to look for ways to become a part of the order of the towel. To become those like our master who told the disciples, if I being your master and Lord washed your feet, now you do the same for others. As those who belong to Jesus, he calls us to be a part of the order of the towel, following his example and setting aside our robe to take up a towel to serve others. Will you join me please as we close in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your great love for us. Love that was demonstrated in your willingness to go to the cross to pay that ultimate penalty of death that we owed for our sins. Lord God, as those who have been recipients of your great grace, may we be those who show that grace to others. May those of us who have benefited from being made a part of the body of Christ, adopted into the family, as we look at you, Jesus, the one who suffered the humiliation of leaving your throne to come to earth and really, Jesus, even continuing to suffer the humiliation of letting us bear your name as Christians because, God, there are times we don't really look like Christ in the world. May we be those, Father, who are willing to set aside our robes, set aside our crown for the cross. Lord God, would you teach us to be those who love and serve as your son did for us. We pray this in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.